John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1293.2C0409, certificate number 22691, the Tanhua Bridge. Dave, I've got our final IP at 12 o'clock, five miles. Tally-ho, I've got the target at one o'clock. Roger. Did I say that right? Tan Hua? Well, Vietnamese is a tonal language, so there's zero chance that either of you, either of us will say any of these Vietnamese names right. Apologies in advance to Tan anyone in the future Hua. who speaks Vietnamese. Hua. That is the Hua. great thing about a tonal language. I like that because it means that even when you're saying it right, you're not saying it right. Tan Hua. So the pressure for a non-native speaker is very low. Yeah. There's no chance. And, you know, and the way Vietnamese is spelled in the Latin alphabet is, you know, it's not like Turkish, which technically is spelled in the Latin alphabet, but it's on... The letters all say different sounds. Yeah, so what, 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 why even bother? Uh, this is, you know, because of Vietnam, Vietnam's colonial history, uh, it actually kind of is phonetic looking. So I'll, I'll just, I'm going to just shoot the moon here. We apologize in advance to actual fluent Vietnamese speakers. Or even people who aren't even fluent if you, in Vietnamese. If you've done like 20 minutes of Duolingo, yeah. we apologize. You're already, you're already beating us. Now, you know I'm loath to do shows about military history. You are so loath. Super duper loath. Also, you know I hate to do boomer shows. I don't know if you're, all your shows are boomer. There's, no, so, there's so much Gen X. 99% of them aren't boomer. There's so much greatest generation. And I mean, certainly your vibe and your soul are boomer. Come on. But your shows are often Gen X. No, the thing about Gen X erasure is that nobody knows what Gen X is. And that was intentional. We intentionally didn't tell you what we were all about. We could have, but we chose not to because we're slackers. Yeah, that's right. We were like, whatever, man, we opt out of you knowing what we're all about. So... You know, calling us boomers is just ignorance. It's just erasure of our whole scene. My kids vibe. my kids do dislike when I call them millennials. I bet they do. In, in retaliation. It doesn't have a really good... calling me boomers. It really doesn't have a super good reputation anymore. So what are they? What what the hell? What the they're, hell? They're Gen Z. Your, your kids are. My kids are Gen Z. So what's my kid? Also Gen Z. No, she's not. Are you saying she's post Gen Z? Well, I don't know. What's What comes after Gen Z? Uh, Aleph. It goes, yeah, it goes back to Alpha, Gen <laughs> Gen Alpha. No, it's like at a at a venue. It'll be like Generation AA, AB, AC. Oh, I see. Uh, we really shouldn't have started so close to the end of the alphabet. Yeah, no, that's unless right. Gen Z never multiplies. It doesn't matter, frankly. Uh, who cares? Also, there's always going to be one or two people on the Facebook page that are like, generations don't have to be divided into narrow. You burp, derp, derp. Yeah, why do they say, why do they always end the sentence burp, a derp, a derp? I don't know. I always give those a thumbs down. Actually, I don't because I'm not on social media, Ken. You know that. Uh, the, the oldest, the youngest you could be to be in Gen Z, I think is, wow, if it's actually a 15 year range, which seems a little narrow, it would be 10. But your daughter's 10. No, she's 11 and a half. 
Well, there you go. That's what I'm saying. Which she would happily tell you. No, ten, oh. ten, is the, 10 is the bottom edge. Oh, I see. All right. Well, she's going to be one of those people that's like, no, I'm a cusp. Also thumbs down. Younger Gen Z, elder Gen Aleph. So this is a story, unfortunately, that also, well, that does fall into the military history silo and also is a boomer the missile, story. The missile silo but, of show ideas you keep. <laughs> but it uh, it has ramifications across the whole, um, well. The whole Southeast Asian theater? <laughs> and and all of boomer culture. No, it, it ramifications that are still almost certainly reverberating 2,000 years into the future. I thought you were going to say ramifications that are still almost relevant. No, ramifications that are still ramming. All the way into the it. ramming will continue until morale improves. The ramming of military topics down your throats. Now you know here uh, at Omnibus at Omnibus Co. Project uh, Incorporated that um, that we support our troops, hundred percent. Well, and, except for the atrocities, yeah, of which and, there may not be that many. So who knows? I, I apologize for even mentioning it. We we teach both sides of the uh, army atrocities. But also, we are patriots, right? Is there anyone who, anyone you know, who is more of a patriot than I am? Um, Come on, think hard. There's this guy I see at church who wears an American flag mask, but never actually over his face. He just wears it over his chin. Mm, That's pretty patriotic. That seems really patriotic. Yeah, but that's the new definition of patriot. The old definition of patriot is somebody like me. Somebody like me who... Is a patriot. The old definition of patriot is a missile with which scuds can't even. Well, but that that definition of patriot came from patriots like me. They named the missile after us. I thought it came from the New England patriots. So no. successful at shooting down the bears in, in Super Bowl twenty or whatever it was. I think the New England patriots, their success only came after the missile, which was after Patriots Like Me. Do you think the missile inspired them, and that's what led to the team's turnaround? It had nothing to do with, with Tom Brady at all? Hmm. I mean, I guess you could say the Yankees were, like the original Yankees, all the way back. Yeah, the Yankees were, were good after the, after the Civil War, and maybe the Civil War inspired them. Well, I'm talking about all the way back, because the, the Patriots logo, he's got a tri-cornered hat on. The, the the fancy pants that's yeah that they have on their it's helmets. A, it's a terrible logo. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to play in a tricorn hat, for one thing. They're a terrible, it's, terrible, terrible influence on American culture. They'll the, take somebody's the, eyes out. The New England Patriots. There are different ways to be patriotic, certainly. Yeah. Well, and so this show is going to be patriotic, but it's also going to... In a cool, enlightened way? Yeah. It's going to illustrate some... It's going to illustrate a few incidents in American military history where we were not technically the victors or maybe arguably even the heroes of the story. But that does not mean that we don't a emphatically support our troops and B uh, that at least I am not a patriot, but I think you're a patriot. Just because you're wearing a hat that says NVA on it doesn't mean, (laughs) doesn't mean you don't support the troops. I mean, you had a 4th of July barbecue. Didn't you? I wasn't invited if you did. I didn't. It was oh. it was like the week before Labor Day. That, that must be some patriotic holiday. Wait, the 4th of July is not the week before Labor Day. No, but the barbecue I held was also oh. not the 4th of July. It was the week before Labor Day. Right, 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 right. I was invited <laughs> to that. We're on the same page here, I think. <laughs> I love America too much to desecrate its birthday with a barbecue. Yeah. I spend all day uh, in church. You do? Sure. Praying for America. Not that it needs it, but just in case. You're saying on the 4th of July, you go to church to pray for America. No. No. I think the churches are even locked. I mean, if it was a Sunday, I guess I would go. Every seven years. Here's how much of a patriot I am. Roughly, roughly every seven years, I go to church on the 4th of July. Every seven years. Right. No, I get it. I get it. Uh, well, let's go back. Let's set the way back machine to all the way back. To all the way back? To the beginning of the universe? The... <laughs> The Big Bang? No, not let's not set the the uh, uh, the way back machine all the way back to the center of the universe or whatever you just said. I wasn't listening, uh, Ken. Um, let's just set the way back machine to the mid '60s. Now, if I were doing Omnibus uh, alone, 
without your moderating influence. Which, as you often told me, is your dream. I would... Almost all of my shows would take place between 1961 and 1969. And most in Southeast Asia. And most in Southeast Asia. But thankfully, you keep me thinking about uh, British scientists from the 19th century. How is it going to look <laughs> if, we don't have a, if we don't have a British scientist up in here? And every once in a while, somebody sends me an angry uh, email that says, why aren't there more millennial stories? And I have to think of one. Well, I just don't like how Americocentric my show ideas tend to be. Yours, you think? Yeah, I think... If left to my own devices, mine would be almost 100% American 20th century with the occasional uh, British show. There's that wonderful map someone made online of uh, all of the omnibus shows, but, uh, but by location. Yeah. And uh, it's a great map. We do shows from all around the world. I need to look at that map and see what's underrepresented. So who's going to complain next and head off the angry Paraguayans or, mm. uh, or, uh, uh, Ugandans or whoever they are. Have we done a, a Uruguay show? No, we haven't. Mm. Next time. Next time on the price is right. South America might be a little light on the ground. In fact, no, no, no. I think we've done at least five South American shows. And you think that's all they deserve? We're on show like this is show 506. You think they should only get one one hundredth of the shows there, John, in the global south? After all the injustices that have been perpetrated per upon them by banana companies and whatnot? Well, I think we've referred to them more than five times. For sure. We're referring to them now. Yeah. Sup, Uruguay. There you go. Six times. Good job winning that one early World Cup. This is a show about Southeast Asia, but it's a story about American adventurism and neocolonialism in Southeast Asia, specifically at the early start of the Vietnam War, but mm, actually extending over the whole course of the Vietnam War. Does this mean we've done three Kennedy-era shows in the last two weeks? Yes. Whoa, the civil rights one, Ben Billingsley, Lem Billings. Yeah, Ben Billingsley from, ben from, Billingsley. from A Christmas Story. <laughs> well, shoot your eye out, Lem. Lem Billings, and now Tan Hoa. So this is this is early sixties, late fifties. Well, so if you recall, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident was in August of nineteen sixty four. Mm -hmm. uh, after Kennedy, we were already sending in our advisors, though, yeah. right? But that was the moment where oh, there was a precipitating and maybe falsified event, and now we're going from just special forces advisors to like stuff's going to happen. Now, uh, now we're going to send in hundreds of thousands of advisors. Lots of advisors. With comic They're going to be doing a lot. They're, a lot of them are going to be 18 years old. And they'll, you be, know, they'll be advising for about a year. <laughs> you know who to look for, look to for advice. 18-year-old Americans. Who don't want to be there. Most 18-year-olds, in my experience, I see in a place where they don't want to be. Because huh. if I'm there, they don't want to be there. Yeah, these days they want to be in a dark basement playing video games. Mm -hmm. When I was That's not when I see them. When I was 18, they all wanted to be at either punk rock shows or fraternity parties, depending on who they were. I was yelling at my kid last night like, "Why are you always texting with your friends? You guys need to be standing in a parking lot somewhere complaining about how it's not fun." Yeah, kicking the tires of your friend's car. This was not persuasive. For rightly so. Uh in the spring of 1964, Lyndon Johnson's now president. And uh, the U.S. military decided that they were gonna uh, they were gonna make some decisive moves. They were gonna kick some Vietnamese butt, and we were gonna get in and out in the space of a year. Yay! We were gonna we were going to show our decisive technological advantage and war making capabilities. Naive in hindsight, but at the time it had never not happened. Right. Well, we didn't really decisively win the Korean War either. There was a little matter of the partitioning of Korea to kind of end it. I guess at the time, maybe World War One was the example of the quagmire, right? Yeah, but when the Americans entered... It's true. We, we, we came in just at the right time. Yeah, like, hey, guess what? We're not even going to really fight the battles. We're just going to threaten to fight them. We fought a few. I guess it was most of the European countries that had the they'll be home by Christmas. Yeah, they were all... In, in both world wars. Exhausted by then. But. And they were right. They were home for some Christmas. Just not the next four or five. Well, they were busy playing soccer on Christmas in no man's land. Yes. Which is better than going home. Yeah. Yeah, because we remember to this day. Would we remember all those guys going home? No. If they were just like at home drinking eggnog, getting a little drunk? No, we wouldn't remember that. Well, we're, we're going to talk about something very memorable from uh, the war in Vietnam. 
Um, and it began in the spring of 65. So just, uh, just within six months of the, of the, the proper war, uh, ramping up LBJ decides that we're going to, we're going to hit some targets in North Vietnam and, uh, and bring this war to a speedy close. And one of those targets was a bridge called the Hamrong bridge, which means the dragon's jaw bridge. Ooh. And it's called the dragon's jaw because it was a, an iron, um, truss bridge. I don't know why it took me a minute to think of truss, but it was an, uh, an iron truss bridge that, you know, had tri- uh, iron triangles, uh, supporting the span. I can picture that. It's called an iron truss bridge. Well, uh, let's call it an iron truss bridge. Okay. And it was, you know, and it looked like a dragon's mouth. Rawr. Oh, cause of the triangles are like the teeth. Yeah. I'm with you. And the Songma river was not like it deep in a Canyon or anything. It was just kind of, it was out on out in flat ground, but it was a choke point in the movement of uh, goods and and services around North Vietnam. In particular, it was south of Hanoi, um, and about 80 miles south of Hanoi. And it was, you know, kind of everything had to go across it. It was a rail bridge as well as a pedestrian bridge and a car bridge. And the only way to get across a major river for, for miles and miles on either side. Right. right. Okay. And the bridge had originally there, there was a bridge there that had built been built by the French, and actually that bridge was destroyed successfully by the Viet Minh uh, fighting the French back in the fifties. Mm-hmm. But then um, the North Vietnam then set about to rebuild the bridge because again it was a it was a major supply route, and they started working on it in the fifties, and they actually only completed the bridge in nineteen sixty four, just just the year prior. And when I say it was a, a car bridge, a pedestrian bridge, and a rail bridge, all three of those things occupied the same area. Oh, so there's it, not like lanes for each? No, that's like the train goes down the middle and then the cars go down the middle too. And and I mean it's the the whole bridge is only fifty feet wide. But that's not I mean, the um it's really only one lane down the middle. And it was little enough vehicle traffic that you could just if you're a on driving a truck, you could work around the train schedule. Uh, no, there was a ton of vehicle traffic, but you know, it's Vietnam in the sixties. So it all, I'm sure it all worked. Out. I'm sure they made room for the train, but the rest of the time, a lot of people on bicycles, you know, it was a, it was, it was a busy, it's uh, so I'm not, it's not out in the, it's not out in the boonies at all. It's no. Okay. Right in the middle of the country. It's, it's kind of like at the geographical center of North Vietnam. Um, and the Song Ma river is a big river and you, and you would have to get across it. And the, the U.S. military planners said, all right, well, we're going to take out this bridge. We remember World War II. And Let's blow up some bridges. That's right. And taking out this bridge, we're going to then bring a screaming halt to the North Vietnamese ability to resupply uh, people fighting in the South. And we're going to disrupt their economy and so forth and so on. And so uh, as part of Operation Rolling Thunder... Now, in modern days, we give operations and fire bases and things names, and those names lately have, I don't know, they seem kind of comical. We did this on the show once, right? Like, yeah. the, now they're just outright propaganda? Yeah, like Operation Just Operation Cause. Justifiable uh, Warfare. <laughs> Homicide. <laughs> please, don't, please don't complain. But Operation Rolling Thunder, like, that's got some poetry to it. You know, and if you're thinking about carpet bombing, it still it, works as propaganda. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's an Operation Rolling Thunder, um, as part of Operation Rolling Thunder. Uh, this mission to destroy the Dragon's Jaw Bridge in April of '65, the Air Force sent 79 aircraft to destroy the bridge. Seems a little. Heavy, but okay. It's a lot. Well, so it's a it's an iron bridge, but it's a built on on cement piers. It took the Vietnamese like seven years to build, so it was a it was a a project. But the bridge itself, if I understand correctly, the deck of the bridge, the the driving surface was wood with uh, with train tracks across it. So hmm. there have been bigger bridges in history destroyed in. Uh, military context. Yeah. 
Uh, 79 aircraft head out in, uh, like on mission nine alpha as part of operation rolling thunder to destroy the bridge. Now the air force is the air force had built a new generation of, of fighter planes and fighter bombers. And they built them with the idea of fighting the Soviets in a uh, global nuclear thermonuclear war. Not just waving at them like Tom Cruise does. No, these are going to be, these are, these are live fire jets. And in the fifties, um, the principle up until that point had been, well, we need to make our planes faster and faster. And in particular, if you're going to drop a nuclear bomb or nuclear bomb, if you're George Bush, you want to get out of there pretty fast. You want to get in and you want to get out. Am I right? Absolutely. You don't want to loiter around. You don't want your propellers, you know, churning up dust. Because you can't just drop the bomb and then remote detonate it. Right. They detonate on impact. So... Um, so that generation, I mean, if you think about in 1938, there were no jet airplanes in 1948, there were lots of jet airplanes. Yeah. And in 1958, um, they were all jet airplanes. Every American had a jet airplane. Uh, so yeah, 38, no Jet airplanes by forty eight. We'd already gone faster than the speed of sound. Um, that's a lot of technology in a short amount of time. If you think of it now being two thousand twenty two, and in two thousand twelve, absolutely nothing was different at all from now, except Twitter was slightly funnier. Is uh, I always think of the 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 dawn of the jet age just affecting passenger travel, but I assume the military. Uh, paradigm shift was even greater it was it was extraordinary and if uh, early in the korean war um there were no like uh, supersonic jet fighters hadn't really arrived on the scene and the mig 15 uh from the soviet union uh could not go faster than sound and it was fighting against american jets that if they were flying straight down uh could but you know that was still a time when Jets were fighting each other with machine guns. Yeah. Uh, by 10 years later, the technology had evolved so much that we had, uh, we had intercontinental jets that could fly, could stay up all night and fly all the way to Soviet Union, drop bombs on them and, and missiles. And the combat would be air to air missiles. Yeah. Not right. Not machine gun. Or and anything. that was the idea, right? That the machine gun was a thing of the past and that we were going to, we were going to shoot, down enemy aircraft from from a distance with our sophisticated missiles, but also that we wanted our jet jet planes to be supersonic because you can outrun things and you can get in and get out fast and you can fly low and fast and avoid radar and uh, anti-aircraft. And, you know, these were all the principles that were defining the design of jet airplanes. So as the air force is putting together their fleet of 79 aircraft to blow up this bridge. And this is, this is just a military target, just a normal, you know, you're not fighting the Soviet union at this point. You have instigated a war with a Southeast Asian country that, um, does not have a, a ton of homegrown technology. And is do they, do they have an air force? They did. The North Vietnamese Air Force at the time had 36 planes, mm. all of them inherited from uh, the Soviets and Chinese, and they were all MiGs, and none of them were supersonic aircraft. The MiG-17 was an evolution of the MiG-15, which had, had been a, a Korean war plane. The MiG-17 was basically just a slightly bigger MiG-15 that could slightly go supersonic, but not much. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did not have air to air missiles. They had, they had cannons and were designed to be lightweight, maneuverable and, and get in dog fights. The U S had these new generation airplanes. The F 100 super saber was, a 
a supersonic fighter plane that was a high-speed aircraft, not especially maneuverable close in. And then the F-105 Thunder Chief. Now, these are all great names, I should say. The Super Saber, the Thunder Chief. Never see those again. I mean, these are this is great branding. The F-105 Thunder Chief was designed to take uh, nuclear bombs deep into enemy territory, drop them, and then turn around and bug out. It could go twice the speed of sound. Now, Omnibus, as we all know, is a show for the working man. That's right. Or woman, or jellyfish, or fungus clump. Right. Aspen uh, acre, acre of Aspen. But sometimes working people need to hire other working people. That's right. It's the grim secret of capitalism. Right. Or the best thing about capitalism. Is getting a boss. That's what everybody likes. Same as the old boss. But what if it's you? What if it's you, boss, same as the old boss? If you are in a situation where you need to hire someone, if you're the boss, allow me and John, if we may be so immodest for a moment, to recommend the way to do that. Who would you recommend, John, for your hiring needs? I'm going to say if you want to find great talent faster through time-saving tools like instant match assessments and virtual interviews. I do. That sounds good. Well, you're going to want to use Indeed. Wow. Yes. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. It's not just a job seeker database. Like, really, the whole process of finding talent is there. For example, Indeed has built in 135 assessment tests you can give prospective job seekers so that most of the stress of the interview process is just gone by the time they get to you. In the minute that you and I have been talking, 16 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed Dead. Think of all the time we've been wasting. When you sponsor an Indeed post in the U.S., you're three times more likely to get a hire, according to Indeed data. Well, three million businesses use Indeed worldwide. Why don't you join them? Why don't you become three million and one? You could start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post If you go to Indeed.com slash Omnibus, this offer is good for a limited time. The right candidate is doing everything they can to find you. And if you use Indeed, you can be sure you're doing everything you can to find them too. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash Omnibus. The only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed.com slash Omnibus. Terms and conditions apply. So the Air Force put together this fleet of 46 F-105 Thunder Chiefs, 21 F-100 Super Sabres to support the Thunder Chiefs. Thunder Chiefs was going to take, they were going to take in the bombs. Or Thunder Chiefs, if you will. Thunder Chiefs. 10 KC-135s, which are giant refueling airplanes. And then a bunch of other support aircraft. One of the things when the Air Force tells this story that they don't mention is that the Navy also was part of this mission, and they had a bunch of Navy aircraft that were supporting the Air Force aircraft. So, what does that just mean? Like, to, like your wingman? Like, well, no, they're defending you. Should there be any air incursion? Or one thing the Vietnamese understood was not having much of an air force. That is to say, only thirty-six planes. They did have a lot of anti-aircraft weapons, mm-hmm. both surface-to-air missiles and machine guns, or not machine guns, cannons. Yeah. And the Russians who were supporting them, I should say the Soviets, saw this as a great opportunity to test their gear. So they sent a bunch of radar equipment and a bunch of, you know, their their top. They didn't send them a bunch of new airplanes, but they did send a bunch of shoot airplanes down style material. And the United States understood that the Vietnamese had this capability. And so the Navy was... There, a lot of the, I mean, the F-100s were also there to kind of try and take out the anti-aircraft stuff so that the the F-105s could get in there, fly low, drop bombs, boom. But also, they had a new technology, which was a guided bomb. Up until this point, it had all been just drop the bombs and hope they land, you know, like 
look out through your little target uh, that's painted on your windshield. Still World War II era tech. Yeah. Um, but now there was something called the bullpup missile. Now, you're not going to name anything a bullpup anymore. What a great name for a missile, the bullpup. I don't know. Uh, it's not really a missile as much as it is a guided bomb, but it is guided. There's a little joystick. So even, so wait, what, what's going on in there? You've got radio, a radio signal yeah. talking to a little what, rudder on it or yeah, something? Yeah, exactly. And you, but the problem is you have to drop the bomb and then you have to fly over again using your little joystick to guide the bomb. Because you got to stay in range. Yeah. Um, so this whole big, uh, incredible entourage, I mean, think about 80 airplanes, 80 plus airplanes. That's a lot of, that's a lot of stuff going on. Yep. They come in on this, uh, you know, this big combat run on, uh, the Hamrong bridge and they drop 32 bullpup guided missiles and 1200 more bombs that should do it that should do it i mean i i imagine like this is wrong but i imagine one bomb hitting a bridge and the bridge blowing up yeah. is the idea that most of them miss or that you have to hit every part of the bridge because it's got these supports the thing about bridges is they actually are pretty strong uh, it's just it's intrinsic, you want. intrinsic to building a bridge you want to build it strong and if you look at the war in ukraine right now there are several bridges that uh, the ukrainians have been shelling for weeks and months and they make a bunch of holes in the bridge, mm -hmm. but to really like blow up a bridge, uh, the 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 way you typically do it is sabotage. Like you get in there, you put enormous amounts of TNT on the supports, on the supports, on the weakest points of the bridge, and you hope that in blowing it up in a in a you know in a special way that eventually the the bridge gives way. It's a lot harder <laughs> blowing to blowing it up in a special way. You blow it up in a special way. It's like something you only hear in sex ed. Yeah. <laughs> and then the bomb touches the bridge in a special way. In a special way. What was crazy about the F-105 Thunder Chiefs is that they could carry eight 750-pound bombs, which each Thunder Chief carried more payload than a B-17 in World <laughs> War II. And there were 46 of those Thunder Chiefs. And nobody said, is this overkill? No, they were like, "This is going to be, uh, this is going to be killer. We're going to blow up this bridge, and you know, the end, right?" The military is not on a budget. No, they get whatever they want. No, they they're having a good time. They like this a lot. They fly over. They drop twelve hundred bombs, thirty two bullpups, and it had almost no effect on the bridge because they all missed, or because the bridge is so sturdy. Uh, some of them missed. Some of them hit. The 32 bullpups had a pretty good hit rate. Mm. Uh, the bridge was closed for a couple of hours. <laughs> so it's just like what happens in Seattle in the summer when the the joints on the Ballard Bridge swell and they have to hose it down. Yeah, although here the West Seattle Bridge has been closed for a year and it didn't even get hit by a single bullpup bomb. We should have sent in the Air Force. The bomb, the bridge would have only been closed for a matter of hours. Yeah, right. If If it had been bombed, it would have been better. <laughs> um, but as this fleet of aircraft was approaching the Hamrong Bridge, the Vietnamese Air Force sent up some MiG-17s to intercept. Now, they also were shooting tremendous amounts of anti-aircraft, uh, like, flak at the incoming jets. But the MiG-17s... Uh, commanded by Pham Nhat Lan, actually engaged with this fleet of American aircraft and with their much lighter aircraft that had guns, they were able to get in close and they claimed to have shot down two American jets. Now, the Americans disputed it and said... Would this have been shameful to have lost even two jets to this earlier attack? It was extremely shameful. Mm. Uh, what the Americans did confess was that one of the F-105s flown by Lieutenant Commander Voden uh, did manage to land, but it was so uh, it was so shot up 
that it landed but was destroyed on landing, although uh, the commander, Commander Voden, you know, walked away. Um, but that shootdown is arguably the first air, aircraft shot down in the Vietnam War. Wow. But in a, in a, uh, in a dogfight. The Navy lost two planes um, to anti-aircraft, and, and in, including one shot down under Lieutenant Commander Spence Thomas, who then became a POW. One of the one of the first POWs, one of the first probably. POWs, yeah. and one who was in the Hanoi Hilton until the seventies. Oh wow. The Air Force and the Navy were embarrassed and enraged and so decided they were going to send another mission the following day. April 4th, 1965, they sent 80 planes back to the Hamrong Bridge. This time they didn't take bullpups because they felt like they'd sent all these expensive bullpups and the bullpups had done nothing. They sent 48 F-105s, all with dumb bombs, and 21 F-100s also to take out uh, you know, uh, any aircraft and support these F-105s against the MiG-17s. I assume the dumb bombs have like higher explosive yields, right? Yeah, they're, they're big, they're scary, um, and they're going to blow up this bridge today. The F-100s had air-to-air missiles, uh, and they were prepared to take out the the MiG-17s with their Sidewinder missiles. So they assumed the MiG-17s were going to come from the north, and they sent all the F-100s up to be prepared for this MiG-17 attack coming from the north. But when they arrived on the scene, the MiG-17s attacked from the south. Uh, A clever tactic. Because your country is literally called North Vietnam. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, the NVA, to come from the South. No, how could they possibly be coming from the South? It's against their whole branding. Even though this bridge is in the center of North Vietnam, there is North Vietnam to the south of them. Plenty of it. Yeah. Just like all those places in Canada that are technically to the south of America. But you still wouldn't expect them to invade through Windsor. Right. They could. If that bridge is still there, they should blow up that bridge that that one uh, guy owns, that Lebanese guy. Yeah, that's right. No, I think that one's that one's just blocked by uh, by mega truckers, Canadian <laughs> right. mega truckers, all the time. Now the Vietnamese were very thrilled about their performance the day before, so much so that in the future, including now, April third, nineteen sixty five, and April third going forward, is known as Air Force Day. Because they had successfully repelled this American uh, bombing mission. Oh, to this day, this is a this is a commemoration. April third, this Air is a Force foundational day. event. On April fourth, uh, they managed to field eight MiG seventeens against eighty American jets. They attacked from the south and they shot down two F one hundred five. Um, the F one hundreds managed to, uh, a couple of different times, get missile locks on MiG-17s, but they were afraid to shoot their missiles because the sky was so full of F-105s that they weren't confident that the missiles wouldn't take out their own planes. <laughs> um, so the, the MiG-17s, able to turn inside of the F-100s and F-105s, and the F-105s, you know, they can go twice the speed of sound, but not when they have eight giant bombs on their wings. Oh, right. It just adds too much weight, or is it aerodynamic? I both. guess it's probably both. Both. They're just, they're just, you know, they're, I mean, they're still fast, but fast isn't helping. They're not faster than anti-aircraft, and they're not, they're not as quick and dirty as these MiG-17s. Planes just want to drop their bombs. You know how they say planes want to fly? Planes want to fly. Planes just want to drop their bombs so they can fly faster. Planes want to drop their bombs. Um, anti-aircraft also was successful, uh, shot down a couple more aircraft 
Um, and the American jets returned to base, uh, having dropped uh, many, many tons of bombs, at basically closing the bridge for a few hours. <laughs> Again. Yeah. Again, it's just, I can imagine the North Vietnamese traffic copter. I'm like, oh, we got some backups to the S-curves coming into the, <laughs> what's this bridge called? Uh, it's called the Dragon's Jaw. The Dragon's Jaw. A little bit of a backup Dra- while we clear the debris from the <laughs> massive bombing run. Dragon's Jaw does sound like a, like a place that traffic reporters would still talk about today. Yeah, it's tight through the Dragon's <laughs> Jaw, down to one lane. <laughs> um, they, uh, the Americans flew... Something close to 450 sorties over Dragon's Jaw, dropping uh, tons and tons and tons of bombs to no great effect. Wait, is a sortie a single flight? A single flight, I see. Trip over. So this is not, um, we have seen more than, so in those first two, you mean there have been 450 flyovers? Okay. And the thing was that the Vietnamese had this Soviet uh, radar technology and they could see the whole battlefield. Whereas the American F-100s had forward-looking radar and couldn't, uh, for instance, tell that the Vietnamese were coming from the south. Mm. Um, so there was, a, uh, there was an issue that the Vietnamese defenders had a clear picture of the whole battlefield, whereas the Americans were kind of in the dark. At which point, the Defense Department turned the job over to the Navy. The Air Force had not managed to take out this bridge. And the bridge is over a river. That's water. Hence, yeah. Navy. And the, the, the Air Force, it was determined, was really good at flying up high and dropping lots and lots of bombs from B-52s. And maybe we should let uh, the Navy handle taking out this bridge. Also, the Air Force was good at flying low and dropping napalm on people. Yeah. And also, they could see this was, this was a money loser. This was, there was no prestige. And you know, whoever is in charge of this is going to take it on the chin, and the Air Force is happy to get out. Right. So here come the Navy. The Navy have a lot of different jets at their disposal. They have the Sky Warriors. They have the Sky Hawks. They have intruders. You could be making all these up as far as I know. You could just be saying GoBots, and I wouldn't know. They have Crusaders, which now seems a little problematic. It's okay in East Asia. Maybe not in the Middle East. So the Navy uh, steps up their uh, their raids, and they, the Navy comes with a new kind of bomb, the walleye. And the walleye is a TV-guided bomb. No longer radio-guided, but TV-guided. And it's probably called the walleye because it's got a TV camera in that. In oh, so that means, that means the, the operator can see video. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, it's more helpful. Uh, the Navy drops a bunch of bombs on it and, uh, I guess maybe closes the bridge for a day, day and a half. That's a new record for the Navy for for all of our armed forces. So later in, in, uh, fast forward now, well, not fast forward because we've spent a lot of time trying to blow up this bridge and, uh, and we've lost a lot of airplanes by this point. A new idea is, is mooted. Is it peace accords in Geneva? No. Oh. Unfortunately, no. Or Paris. No, this is Operation Carolina Moon. <laughs> that just seems like some general or admiral is from North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Okay. What does, what, what does Operation Carolina it, Moon entail? It does sound like a ballad, doesn't it? Operation Carolina Moon. First, we're going to put mustard on barbecue. Then. Operation Carolina Moon uh, is the following. They built a special bomb, a magnetic mine that is pancake-shaped. Is that good? As we'll see, no. <laughs> it weighs two and a half tons, and it is eight feet in diameter. Well, they're dropping an, like, a, they're basically dropping a, a dining room table on the bridge? Yes. Huh. The idea being that they will drop it in the river. Oh. It will float downriver, and then its magnetism will sense the iron in the bridge and explode under the bridge, thereby destroying the bridge. So it's not remote. It, it, it blows automatically, but only when it is close to iron. Yeah. And if you recall in World War II, there was a dam-busting bomb that was like barrel-shaped, and the bomber flew over 
the reservoir and dropped the bombs, and the bombs skipped across the water until they hit the dam, and it actually blew up the dam. That's a famous mission. Is this from that Dam Busters movie? It's from a Dam Busters movie, but it actually happened. In this case, they're like, yeah, we got this pancake bomb. But the only airplane that could carry it was a C-130 Hercules, which is a which is a transport bomb, a transport plane. The first night, May 30th, they flew in with the transport plane and they dropped five uh, pancake bombs. The bombs floated down the river and exploded, doing no damage to the bridge. <laughs> so that really made them mad. And Operation Carolina Moon... Two was the following night. Um, but by this point in time, the Vietnamese realized that if there, if the Air Force and the Navy failed to blow up the bridge, which they consistently did, they were very likely to come back the following night uh, with the same exact plan. And so they came. We flew back the following night. I say we, like the royal we, U- United States of America. Royal, we would be you. Right. Me. I flew back the following night. And this time, uh, the Vietnamese anti-aircraft shot down the C-130 with all the crew and also shot down the new jet, the F-4 Phantom, which had come in to replace the F-100. Oh, wow. Now, the F-4 Phantom was designed as this next generation of American fighter plane. And actually became one of the great fighter planes of American history. It was so beloved that the Air Force adopted it, the Navy adopted it, the Marines flew it. Everybody wanted it. And that's not true, you know, going forward to today. I mean, we're, we're coming Generally, out of— there's not inter-service. Yeah, we're coming out of 30 years of the Air Force and the Navy saying they need completely different aircraft. But the F-4 was originally designed without— a cannon and the experience of trying to blow up the Hamrong bridge sent the military planners back to the drawing board. They said, wait a minute, we are losing because our, our planes don't have guns. And they actually redesigned the F four to include guns. We're going to bomb them back to the drawing board. They built a brand new airplane out uh, based on the the um, the Constellation. Do you remember the Constellation, which was a passenger jet? There's one at Boeing Field. Okay. This beautiful passenger jet. They took pre-jet or oh, it's a jet. It's a jet. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a jet, but a early jet. Yeah. They took these constellations and they built a forward radar control uh, apparatus inside the jet, so that they could fly the constellation out to the battle area and give themselves a uh, give themselves a radar picture of uh, no the Lockheed constellation is actually a, a propeller aircraft um, but like it was a big it was a beautiful plane and a, and a, it was a, a, a passenger craft mm-hmm. right it was just prior to the Boeing um, 707. This was kind of the the luxury craft of its day. They outfitted it as forward air control. Like the the U.S. military was trying to learn from this experience. Um, they had a, air, a, a also a wonderful aircraft, the F one eleven, and they decided that the F one eleven was too slow, too fat. They needed they needed to design some slick airplanes because they realized, oh, if we're going to fight all these little wars in Indochina, we're going to need Airplanes that can do the job. Um, also, they stopped building pancake-shaped floating mines. Was this the last time the, uh, a, a pancake-shaped floating mine was ever used? I believe it was. Uh, so from 1965 to 1968, the Navy tried multiple times to blow up the Dragon's Jaw Bridge and failed uh, miserably. And, and just time. to be clear, the Tanhua Bridge is another name for this bridge, or is this a different... Oh, the Tanhua is the is the bridge is the is the oh Hamrong is just the nickname for it. Hamrong is the nickname. Okay. Dragon's Jaw. Tanhua is actually a town, 
and the bridge is nearest to the town and so it's just like saying like oh it's the it's the Tacoma it's the bridge into Tacoma got it in 1968 Lyndon Johnson paused all bombing of North Vietnam um we were headed toward some peace talks uh he said this bombing isn't really working let's knock it off and we'll uh we'll try another method so from 68 to 72 there was no attempt to bomb the Dragon's Jaw Bridge after 5 years of nothing but attempts to bomb it 5 years of nothing but attempts um during this period the United States claims that they only lost 11 aircraft trying to destroy the bridge um but if you include all the aircraft shot down by anti-aircraft weapons within 75 miles of the bridge. Well, and why would you not? Because that's why the planes were there, right? Yeah. Uh, we're talking more about 104 <laughs> pilots, American pilots shot down. Wow. Now, this 74-mile perimeter also it gets into the outskirts of Hanoi. So, Oh, so some of these were not related to bridge missions? Presumably. But there were an awful lot of bridge missions that um that uh, accounted for a lot of aircraft shot down in 1972 after a four year long moratorium on bombing the north the north vietnamese army invaded south vietnam and that uh the now the gloves were off and president richard nixon authorized operation linebacker which was another attempt to bomb North Vietnamese North Vietnam into submission. This one will be different. Yeah. And at this point, you know, while the B-52s were dropping, you know, a billion tons of bombs, not literally, a new mission was concocted to destroy the bridge. And on April 27th of 1972, 12 of the new F-4 Phantoms, the new jet, took the new invention, which was partly um, designed as a result of attempting and failing to to blow up this bridge with two different kinds of precision-guided munitions, the the walleye and the bullpup, a new kind of bomb, the laser-guided bomb. So I've heard of this. Now, what does that mean? The laser is coming from the... From inside the house. From inside the bomb? My sense of laser-guided bombs is that... Uh, oh, the laser is shot from the plane? And yes. Then, uh, and then the bomb can see the laser like a cat. Yeah, something shoots a laser at the target, and then the bomb follows the laser. The bomb can see the... It keys in on the light. On April 27th, um, 12 F-4s using laser-guided bombs managed to dislodge one side of the bridge. Oh, well, that's good. That that seems like a new step forward. So far better than any prior attempt. The Air Force, not satisfied, went back uh, a couple of weeks later in May with 14 F-4s dropping 2,000-pound laser-guided bombs, and they actually pretty severely damaged the bridge. The Navy, not content to be left out of it, came back at the end of the summer and dropped eight 2,000-pound bombs, finally destroying the bridge. You could see why the Navy wants in on this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because if the Air Force beat the bridge and the bridge beat the Navy, that means by the transit of property, Air Force beats Navy. There you go. You can't have that. No, you can't. Um, finally, the, uh, the Hamrong Bridge is destroyed. Victory for the Americans. I remember the parades all over the country. Yeah. Um, unfortunately for the Americans, they rebuilt the Hamrong Bridge the following year. <laughs> they were going to say the following day. Following day. <laughs> now, there were a lot of great engineers in Vietnam, then as now. And uh, they rebuilt the bridge, and the bridge still stands. And is the one that was rebuilt right, right then, yeah. a year after the Nixon bombing, and is a symbol of Vietnamese resistance to the to the people of Vietnam. 
How interesting. This bridge is, uh, is, you know, kind of celebrated as the invincible, indestructible bridge. That's, it's made of magical anti-imperialist it, iron. It is compatible with Marxism, this bridge. <laughs> and it, you know, it was, it defeated the Americans so many times that it was regarded as a, a like a supernatural force. The American military in failing to defeat this bridge completely rethought their whole aircraft strategy, not only redesigning their airplanes, as I've mentioned, but they designed their future airplanes, both the F-15 for the Air Force and the F-14 for the Navy. I'm sure that drove the Navy crazy that their airplane was one less than the Air Force, although their airplane had two people in it where the F-15 only had one. Both aircraft Absolutely, although designed to fire missiles from over the horizon, both had machine guns as a as an important component of their design. They brought machine guns back. In order to be sure to be able to fight uh, any kind of putt-putt MiG-17 that was thrown up by the Libyans because they were, you know, the Soviets had sold them surplus. But also, and, and in addition to precision-guided mus- munitions, the Navy developed the top gun program. Oh, because pilot skill was clearly lacking. Is that yeah. is that is that one lesson of the of the bridge yeah. failure? There was an instance where uh, one of the Navy's, you know, or or was it the Air Force? One of the one of the sort of main fighter pilot instructors gave a talk where he said, you know, if you slam on the brakes of your airplane, like cut the power and throw up the nose and put your flaps on really fast. The MiG-17 will go right by you and then you'll be on its tail and then you power up and you can shoot the plane down. And someone actually tried it and it worked and they were so shocked that they, <laughs> that they forgot to shoot. Oh, the pilot was so shocked. The pilot was just like, Whoa. And had the MiG in its, in his sights, but then the, he didn't, he was freaked out uh, by his, by the success of the tactic. And so the Top Gun fighter pilot school, and then, of course, the Air Force. You don't see that in movies a lot. No. You don't see James Bond be like, oh, oh, whoa, I can't believe this worked. Whoa. Oh, I forgot to shoot. Hmm. (laughs) So both the Navy and the Air Force developed fighter pilot schools in order to teach these close combat techniques that uh, that they learned basically trying to take out the Tanhua bridge. It seems like we should commemorate this bridge. Also, this bridge built us a better military in yeah. a way that our own institutions seemed unable to do. Yeah. It, it, uh, it only cost us, uh, you know, 104 pilots, um, and I, 873 sorties. I can see why the optics would not be great if we put the Tanhua bridge on a postage stamp, but there's a case for it. Well, there have been now several reunions where Americans and Vietnamese who were combatants against one another have met at the Tanhua Bridge. Oh, as a symbolic and, gesture. You know, and walked across it and handshakes and um Are any of the Americans like tempted to, bl- to blow it up while they're there? No, I think that they, they walk across it and they go, huh, yeah, uh, uh, pr- pretty good bridge. Pretty good bridge. And that concludes the Tanhua Bridge, entry 1293.2C0409, certificate number 22691, in the omnibus. Now, you can correct uh, John's and my pronunciation of uh, Vietnamese words uh, through several channels, if they are available to you. On social media, you can find us at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, and at Omnibus Project. Uh, via email, we are the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. You can mail us, you can write out your pronunciations phonetically and send the corrections to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington 98155. I have Do it, although something that came in the mail. Here. We've proved ourselves only barely able to pronounce things, even if it's written phonetically. What do you got over there? It's hard to say. I opened the bottom of this box because it seemed to be the less taped side, but I think that means I put the explanatory note at the bottom. Okay. And it's buried in styrofoam peanuts. Okay. Let's see. What do we got here? Chase says to enjoy these vintage baseball and hockey caps. Chase says to enjoy. 
thank you for the many hours of enjoyment and learning. I guess he was the one who once offered to send us Gros Michel bananas and was thwarted by the obvious impediments to sending bananas through the U.S. Post. Um, you've got the hats over there behind your Dell computer. Are you going to show them to well, me? There, there are, he's, he's got a series of explanatory oh. cards, which he has actually pasted onto different colors of construction paper in the manner of a, of a fifth grade science fair entrant. I see those. They're quite beautiful. What do they say? Seattle Rainiers. Yes, 1903 good. to 1906 and then 1968 of the Pacific Coast League. Excellent. The Walla Walla Padres, a Class A short season affiliate of the San Diego Padres from 90, from 73 to 82 in the Northwest League. I did not know there were a Walla Walla Padres. No, and I don't think that there were any Spanish missions in Walla Walla, were there? <laughs> the Padres there might be, uh, what, are, what would Padres be doing there? Maybe it's uh, like a Spanish girl calling her lover her daddy. Yeah. Oh, no. It could actually be her daddy. He's he's picking applets and cotlets out there in the fields. That's true. And he's brought his hijos and hijas to this country, and therefore he's a padre. Yeah. See. And there's another hat for the Seattle Metropolitans. Excellent. Our Stanley Cup champions of 1917. I, I went to the parade. I don't know about you. Um. And the fourth, the fourth card suggests the Billy's the music video to the Billy Squire song "Rock Me Tonight" for an omnibus episode. Rock me tonight. Let's look at the hats. All right. The Seattle Rainiers hat is green with a red S. It looks like a Christmassy S because that the yeah. the, the letters on it look like it's a um, it's a candy cane. It doesn't really convey athletics in any way. Besides the fact that it's a baseball cap. No, but there are so many sports nerds in Seattle that probably somebody's going to be oh, like, I'm wrong. Know what that is. That's the Metropolitan's hat, of course. Here's the hockey logo on the side. Oh, I see. Okay. I see. This makes more sense. Like, the fact that it this looks like it could come from the first decade of the 20th century. Yes. The Seattle Rainiers hat says, Seattle Rainiers. There it is. I mean, it's it's got all the perils that come with wearing a red baseball cap in 2022. Right, with r- white lettering. The Walla Walla Padres apparently borrowed the classic yellow and brown color scheme they sure did of the 70s and early 80s era san diego padres you know my uh my grade school little league team was the anchorage padres why i don't know we all the little league teams were paired with some kind of baseball you know real baseball team probably not paired probably just assigned right assigned like i don't think the san diego organization knew much about what their Anchorage affiliate was up to. No, we didn't pick it, but we all had Padres uniforms, brown and yellow, tall yellow socks and brown I should pants. keep one of these hats for my baseball-loving son. I mean, he sent three hats to two people. What, let's have a draft. What would you take? Well, why don't you give Dylan the Rainier's hat, and I'll take the Padres hat. You should take the other two, since oh, I got okay. first pick then. All right. That's what you would have wanted, right? The Rainier's? I feel like that's what he'll want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Walla Walla Padres are pretty good because they're, um, you know, because it's such a curio. We should call out the Ebbets Field Company, which is a local Seattle uh, sports stuff maker that makes a lot of classic stuff. And these are Ebbets Field joints. I didn't know those were by Ebbets Field. Yeah, if you look here on the tag. I was going to see if Dylan could cameo on the omnibus here yeah, again. Let's get Dylan. Oh, he's in a meeting and texts to say what's up. Well, you missed your chance. You missed your chance. Teen, that's okay. Ungrateful teen. I can't believe he um ducked out of this meeting to reply to my text. He usually doesn't. What meetings can a can a child possibly? This have? Is, it's actually a doctor's appointment. I'm sure the doctor loves that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's not old enough to have meetings. Yeah, Come on. Meetings. What do you mean? Who are you I, I think meeting? you should be wearing that yellow brown, yellow and brown Walla Walla hat yeah. quite a bit. That How's that look? Good. That's great. It's got a, a really flat brim right now, which is a... That's what you is, want. That's a mood. Uh, it's a it's a drip. It's a vibe. Yeah. It's a fit. Yeah. Thank you, Chase. Uh, we will consider your Billy Squire request. We'll take it under advisement, but the hats really do help your cause. They do. Um... The most important thing you do to support Omnibus is not to send us um, your science fair project notes about minor league baseball or Billy Squire songs, although we love that, but to go to patreon.com slash omnibus project. And once you donate, you can criticize our Vietnamese pronunciation 
all you want, even at the lowest level. I feel like that comes with unlimited privilege for sure to complain about our or, or any tonal language, in fact. Um, Patreon.com slash Omnibus Project and check out the many perks and privileges that are enjoyed by our supporters. Uh, you can find all of them, Patreon donors and I was going to say Patriots. Patreon, Patriots, Patriots right here in this room. We're the Patriots. They are the Patreon donors and cheapskates alike who can be found at the Futurelings groups on Facebook and Reddit and OnlyFans and Grinder and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we wish you many goods and cheese and hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office.